Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book six, chapter 17. Andre's new zeal for life has also seemed to open his romantic side and he's already daydreaming about the prospect of marrying Natasha. Do you think his newfound infatuation is reciprocated or is Natasha more in love with the ball itself than with Andre? The first line of the chapter has Boris dancing with Natasha once, even though he was warned off by Natasha's mother in a previous chapter. Do you think he will reopen his courtship? I think he's just being polite at that point. Pierre at the end of the chapter is obviously unhappy with his wife. What emotion and reasoning is it at the base of his unhappiness? Anger at the company she keeps, jealousy of her popularity, the other kind of jealousy and suspicion that she might still have dalliances. Ripster... Wait, sorry, no. Warren Kovoffi, that's what I'm reading today. Andre seems to be drawn to Natasha, but I think she might be more drawn to Pierre. I'm wondering if there's going to be some sort of a love triangle going on, or maybe Natasha rejecting Andre because her heart is set on the gloomy Pierre. Then again, it's hard to tell because Natasha seems to like everyone genuinely. It appears Natasha has caught the eye of many potential suitors, but she will share a mutual interest. Will she share a mutual interest in any of them? That is the one and only comment I'm going to read on today's episode because I need to get to bed. So let's just keep reading. Chapter 18. Next day, Prince Andre thought of the ball, but his mind did not dwell on it long. Yes, it was a very brilliant ball. And then, yes, that little Rostova is very charming. There's something fresh, original, un-Petersburg-like about her that distinguishes her. That was all he thought about yesterday's ball, and after his morning tea, he set to work. But either from fatigue or want of sleep, he was still ill-disposed for work and could get nothing done. He kept criticising his own work, as he often did, and was glad when he heard someone coming. The visitor was Bitsky, who served on various committees frequented by all societies in Petersburg, and was a passionate devotee of the new ideas of the Speransky and of diligent Petersburg newsmonger, one of those men who choose their opinions like the clothes according to the fashion but who, for that very reason, appear to be the warmest partisans. Hardly had he got rid of his hat before he ran into Prince Andre's room with a preoccupied air and at once began talking. He had just heard particulars of that morning sitting of the Council of State opened by the Emperor, and he spoke of it enthusiastically. The Emperor's speech had been extraordinary. It had been a speech such as only constitutional monarchs deliver. The sovereign plainly said that the council and senate are estates of the realm. He said that the government must rest not on authority but on secure bases. The emperor said that the fiscal system must be reorganized and the accounts published, recounted Bitsky, emphasizing certain words and opening his eyes significantly. Ah, yes, today's events mark an epoch, the greatest epoch in our history, he concluded. Prince Andre listened to the account of the opening of this Council of State which he had so impatiently awaited and to which he attached such importance and was surprised that this event, now that it had taken place, did not affect him and even seemed quite insignificant. He listened with quite quiet irony to Bitsky's enthusiastic account of it. A very simple thought occurred to him. What does it matter to me or to Bitsky what the Emperor was pleased to say at the Council? Can all that make me any happier or better? And this simple reflection suddenly destroyed all the interest Prince Andre had felt in the impending reforms. 
He was going to dine that evening at Speransky's with only a few friends, as the host had said when inviting him. The prospect of that dinner in the intimate home circle of the man he so admired had greatly interested Prince Andre, especially as he had not yet seen Speransky in his domestic surroundings, but now he felt disinclined to go to it. At the appointed hour, however, he entered the modest house Speransky owned in the Torida Gardens in the parqueted dining room of this small house, remarkable for its extreme cleanliness, suggesting that of a monastery. Prince Andre, who was rather late, found the friendly gathering of Speransky's intimate acquaintances already assembled at five o'clock. There were no ladies present except Speransky's little daughter, long-faced like her father, and her governess. The other guests were Gervais, Magnitsky, and Stolypin. While still in the anteroom, Prince Andre heard loud voices and a ringing staccato laugh, a laugh such as he, as one heard on the stage. Someone, it sounded like Speransky, was distinctly ejaculating, ha ha ha. Prince Andre had never been before heard Speransky's famous laugh, and his this ringing, high-pitched laughter from a statesman made a strange impression on him. He entered the dining room. The whole company was standing between two windows at a small table laid with hors d'oeuvres. Speransky, wearing a grey swallowtail coat with a star on the breast and evidently still the same waistcoat and high white stock he had worn at the meeting of the Council of State, stood at the table with a beaming countenance. His guests surrounded him. Magnitsky, addressing himself to Speransky, was relating an anecdote and Speransky was laughing in advance at what Magnitsky was going to say. When Prince Andrei entered the room, Magnitsky's words were again crowned by laughter. Stolypin gave a deep bass a guffaw, and as he munched a piece of bread and cheese, Gervais laughed softly with a hissing chuckle, and Speransky in a high-pitched staccato manner. Still laughing, Speransky held out his hand to Prince Andrei. Very pleased to see you, Prince, he said. One moment, he went on, turning to Magnitsky, and interrupting his story. We have agreed that this is a dinner for recreation, with not a word about business. And turning again to the narrator, he began to laugh afresh. Prince Andre looked at the laughing Speransky with astonishment, regret and disillusionment. It seemed to him that this was not Speransky, but someone else. Everything that had formerly appeared mysterious and fascinating in Speransky suddenly became plain and unattractive. At dinner, the conversation did not cease for a moment and seemed to consist of the contents of a book of funny anecdotes, before Magnitsky had finished the story, someone else was anxious to relate something still funnier. Most of the anecdotes, if not relating to the state service, related to the people in the service. It seemed that in this company, an insignificant of those people was so defiantly accepted that the only possible attitude toward them was one of good-humoured ridicule. Speransky related how, at the council that morning, a definite dignitary when asked his opinion, replied that he thought so too. Gervais gave a long account of an official revision, remarkable for the stupidity of everybody concerned. Stolypin stuttering broke into the conversation and began excitedly talking of the abuses that existed under the former order of things. Threatening to give a serious turn to the conversation, Madnitsky starting quizzing Stolypin about his vehemence, Gervais intervened with a joke and talk reverted to its former lively tone. Evidently, Speransky liked the, to rest after his labours and find amusement in a circle of friends, and his guests, understanding his wish, tried to enliven him and amuse themselves. But their gaiety seemed to Prince Andre mirthless and tiresome. Speransky's high-pitched voice struck him unpleasantly, and the incessant laughter grated on him like a false note. 
Prince Andre did not laugh and feared that he would be a damper on the spirits of the company, and not, but not one took any notice of his being out of harmony with the general mood. They all seemed very gay. He tried several times to join in the conversation, but his remarks were tossed aside each time like a cork thrown out of the water, and he could not jest with any of them. There was nothing wrong or unseemly in what they did. It was witty and might have been funny, but it lacked just that something which is the salt of mirth, and they were not even aware that such a thing existed. After dinner, Speransky's daughter and her governess rose. He patted the little girl with his white hand and kissed her, and that gesture too seemed unnatural to Prince Andre. The men remained at the table over their port, English fashion, in the midst of the conversation that was started about Napoleon's Spanish affairs, which they all agreed in approving. Prince Andre began to express a contrary opinion. Speransky smiled and with an evident wish to prevent the conversation from taking an unpleasant course, told a story that had no connection with the previous conversation. For a few moments all was silent. Having sat some time at a table, Speransky corked a bottle of wine and remarking, nowadays good wine rides in a carriage and pair, passed it to the servant and got up. All rose and continuing to talk loudly went into the drawing room. Two letters brought by a courier were handed to Speransky and he took them to his study. As soon as he had left the room, the general merriment stopped and the guests began to converse sensibly and quietly with one another. Now for the rec recitation, said Speransky, on returning from his study. A wonderful talent, he said to Prince Andre. And Magnitsky immediately assumed a pose and began reciting some humorous verses in French, which he had composed about various well-known Petersburg people. He was interrupted several times by applause. When the verses were finished, Prince Andre went up to Speransky and took his leave. Where are you off to so early? asked Speransky. I promised to go to a reception. They said no more. Prince Andre looked closely into the mirror-like impenetrable eyes and felt that it had been ridiculous of him to have expected anything from Speransky and from any of his own activities connected with him or ever to have attributed importance to what Speransky was doing. That precise mirthless laughter rang in Prince Andre's ears long after he had left the house. When he reached home, Prince Andre began thinking of his life in Petersburg during those last four months as if it were something new. He recalled his exertions and solicitations and the history of his project of army reform, which had been accepted for consideration, and which they were trying to pass over in silence, simply because another, a very poor one, had already been prepared and submitted to the emperor. He thought of the meetings of the committee of which Berg was a member, he remembered, how carefully and at what length everything relating to form and procedure was discussed at those meetings, and how sedulously and promptly all that related to the gist of the business was evaded. He recalled his labours of the legal code and how painstakingly he had translated the articles of the Roman and French codes into Russian, and he felt ashamed of himself. Then he vividly pictured to himself Bogotrov, his occupations in the country, his journeys to Ryazan, he remembered the peasants and drawn the village elder, and mentally applying to them the personal rights he had divided into paragraphs, he felt astonished that he could have spent so much time on such useless work. Alrighty, there we go, there's another chapter for you. Done, sped through that one. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.